Before I begin my message, I'd like to just bring a ministry update to you, to, just to stay in uh, communication with you about different things taking place in our ministry together. Uh, some of you may have read the letter that Pastor Jeremy sent out, I believe it was on Friday, uh, basically indicating that uh, Brian Stanley, our d- Director of Youth Ministry, is going to finish his time with us here uh, at the end of this month, January 31st. And so we are going to be entering into a process of uh, seeking a synodically trained director of Christian education for youth ministry to call to come and be on our staff. And uh, that will take some time, but we're looking forward to that. But in the meantime, we're really blessed to have one of our own members, Hillary Makowski, who's volunteered to step up and, and take, take on a part-time temporary role to help us bridge the gap. And she is going to work with the uh, junior high and high school youth, uh, starting with tonight's youth meeting, and uh, is going to be also working with them on planning for the National Youth Gathering in Minnesota next summer. So we're thrilled to have her uh, on staff part-time and and bridging this time until we're able to call a full-time church, uh, excuse me, a full-time youth worker. Also, uh, last weekend, we had a pretty significant event take place on our campus, uh, the uh, You recall as voters that you authorized the next phase of the policy governance process to take place, and our entire board of directors and executive staff team uh, met last weekend, Friday night, all day Saturday and half of Sunday, uh, in the next step of establishing policies uh, relative to our new governance model. Uh, Our consultant, Paul Zills, was with us for that entire 18-hour period, and uh, great progress was made. And I want to thank all those who who were there, who put in the time and effort uh, for that purpose. Uh, The process requires a lot of upfront effort and and work, but it will ultimately be a real blessing to the congregation. And we have another such similar weekend coming up in February, the 8th through the 10th, where more policies will be established and a new constitution and bylaws uh, drafted to be presented to you, the voters, uh, at at a voters' meeting. But anyway, just want to keep you abreast that things are moving forward with the policy governance process. And then also, of course, the pastoral call process continues. You're invited to submit names of uh, pastors that you would like to consider being uh, serving as the senior pastor here at Shepherd of the Desert. You can nominate names up until January 31st. The nomination forms are in the narthex, and you uh, send that to the call committee, and there's information about how to do that. So I invite you to take part in that as you see fit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to know you more personally and intimately. We want to know who you truly are. And as we delve into your word and look at the stories of your life, Teach us more of who you are, especially today as we consider your baptism. In your name we pray, amen. Well, grace to you and peace from the Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, amen. We are in this series where we're asking this question, who is Jesus? We want to understand that more clearly. And we're taking a look at some case evidence to answer that question. The case evidence comes from Jesus' life itself. And this case evidence comes specifically from the most historically uh, reliable documents in ancient literary history. 
bar none, the most, the most historically reliable documents, sacred or secular, are the New Testament manuscripts. And specifically, we're looking at the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four books that tell the life story and ministry of Jesus. And we're asking the question, as we examine these texts, who exactly is Jesus anyway? You know, in, world, in the world today, there are many and various common misunderstandings about who Jesus is. There are some people who have the attitude that Jesus is just a good moral teacher. Others would say, well, Jesus is actually a false messiah who died a failure. There are even some who would say, I don't believe Jesus even historically ever lived. Who is Jesus anyway? And how do we say it? How do we know it? Today we're taking a look at the story of his baptism. We're going to focus primarily on the Gospel of Luke, his account of the story. And we really begin this story with the person who actually conducts the baptism. That's a man named John. Came to be known as John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. John, as you recall, was the son of Elizabeth, a relative of Jesus' mother Mary. And he was the son of Zechariah, the priest. When John got to be an adult, God directed him to preach calling people to repent of their sins and to be baptized. He was the, you might say, the living fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy about a voice calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So John was the forerunner, you might say, the one who went ahead of the Messiah, the forerunner of the Savior. And as such, he challenged people to produce behavior in keeping with repentance. He also challenged them to get ready for the Messiah to appear. So let's see how this story unfolds. Luke 3, starting at verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. All right, they're seeing this rather strange character who came out of the desert uh, eating locusts and wild honey and, and wearing animal skins and, and wondered who he was. And then they heard him preaching this message of repentance and baptizing and they wondered perhaps this is the guy. Maybe this is the Messiah. And John became aware of their speculations and here's where we see the humility of John come out in this story. John does not want the people to misunderstand who he is, nor does he want the spotlight to be on himself. No, John very intentionally refocuses the people's attention on the one other than himself. And so listen carefully to how he describes that one other than himself. And as I read these words, have the question in your mind, who is Jesus? John the baptizer says, one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, of course, John is speaking about Jesus. But notice what he says about Jesus. Notice the affirmations that John gives of just exactly who Jesus is. First of all, he says he is that one more powerful than I will come. One more powerful than I. He acknowledges that Jesus has a power far greater than any human could have. Secondly, he says, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. It's his way of saying, this one is worthy of honor. This one is one to be adored. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is someone who can actually give the Holy Spirit. This must be someone more than just a mere man because only God himself can give the Holy Spirit. And so this statement is a declaration that Jesus was divine himself, that he himself was God. And then fourthly, he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What was he saying with that? He's saying that Jesus is nothing less than the judge of all people. Here, here John uses some imagery that we in our urbanized world may be less familiar with. Now, some of you who come from rural areas perhaps are more familiar with this whole concept of the separation of the wheat from the chaff. In antiquity, they would pile the wheat on a, on a special floor area called the threshing floor where the wheat would be beaten so that the edible grains would be separated from that which is inedible. The grain gathered into barns and the chaff, the inedible part, would be thrown away or burned. There was a separation of the two parts. John uses this as a metaphor for judgment day. He's saying that Jesus will be the judge on judgment day, separating those who believe in Jesus as their Savior from those who rejected Jesus as Savior, those who had faith from those who don't which will take place on the last day. Jesus, he's saying, is nothing less than the judge of all humanity. Those are pretty powerful affirmations from John the baptizer of who Jesus is. But now our text continues with verse 21 and following. It says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Do you see what's going on here? At his baptism, Jesus received some affirmations from heaven about who he really is. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, it tells us. And the heavenly Father spoke these affirming words to him. You are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. 
Man, if you think about it, this is one remarkable event. The entire triune God is on display here. The entire Trinity is present. God the Father speaks from heaven. The Son of God is being baptized and the Holy Spirit descends upon him in bodily form like a dove. And hearing the words of the Father about the Son, you are my beloved Son, reminds us of Isaiah's words. Yes, the prophet Isaiah, who lived 700 years before Jesus and who said this, so God said this through Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Those words were 700 years before Jesus came along. They were foretelling Jesus himself. And at his baptism, those words are brought to life. For at his baptism, Jesus is affirmed as the promised Messiah of Israel. And now, when it came time for Jesus to be baptized, initially, John was just a little bit hesitant to do this. And I think that's out of his own sense of humility. Uh, but uh, Matthew is the one who gives us this insight about this part of the story. In Matthew chapter 3, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But then the way Jesus responded is extremely insightful. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus replied, let it be so now. Catch this. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. What I want you to catch here is that Matthew's account helps us understand why Jesus was baptized in the first place. After all, Jesus was the sinless son of God. He didn't need the cleansing of sin that baptism provides. So why was he baptized? Those words that Matthew shared with us give us insight as to why Jesus was baptized. Jesus himself answered the question. It was to fulfill all righteousness. What's meant by that? Well, his baptism really is done for a variety of reasons. And the first is to indicate that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. You see, God had certain righteous requirements of what Messiah would be. And all of those righteous requirements for the Messiah were fully met in Jesus. And so his baptism indicates that he is the promised Messiah. What I think is important to understand is that the very Hebrew word Messiah, which is the same word as Christ or Christos in Greek, those two words mean the same thing, the anointed one, the anointed one. It harkens back to the fact that in the Old Testament times, there were three kinds of people who were anointed into their office of service to the Lord. Prophets were anointed into their office. Priests were anointed. And kings were anointed. Catch this. Now Jesus, at his baptism, is now anointed 
in the fullest way into his trifold office of the great prophet, the great priest, and the great king of kings and lord of lords. He is the great anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ that God had promised to send centuries earlier. So his baptism, first of all, indicates that he is the Messiah, the one the prophets foretold. Secondly, his baptism is his way of identifying with humankind. We said, of course, that Jesus himself was sinless. But in his baptism, it's like he identifies with our sin and our failures. He identifies with us so closely, he then becomes our substitute as he later gives his life on the cross. But his baptism is his first step into our identity. Thirdly, he was, the reason that he was baptized was to give an example to his followers. He wanted them to experience the fullness of what baptism can mean for them, the fullness of, of the washing and cleansing and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and he sets an example for them, for you and for me. And then fourthly, his baptism was the way to initiate his public ministry. He's now 30 years old, and his baptism is the launching point, the initiating event of his three-year public ministry. And in fact, something really significant happens the very next day, the day after Jesus' baptism. And again, it involves John the baptizer. This part of the story is told to us by the apostle John in his gospel in chapter 1. It says, the next day, the day after Jesus' baptism, John, that is John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Wow, what a testimony from an eyewitness of all of these events. And did you hear how John described Jesus? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' baptism ultimately points forward to his reason for coming into the world in the first place. That is to be the sacrificial lamb who would die for the sins of the people. Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There on that cross, he earned the forgiveness that none of us deserve as he took our place, as he fully identified with our sin and died for it. And through what he did, forgiveness is offered to all who believe in him freely, freely and fully. 
You know, if you think about it, somebody had to be punished. God couldn't simply ignore sin. He couldn't pretend it wasn't there. He couldn't wave a magic wand and make it go away. Someone had to be punished for it. And it was either going to be us who deserve it or it's going to be an adequate substitute. And that substitute had to be sinless himself and human. And there's only one who meets, meets that, uh, that qualification. There's only one who is both God and man, Jesus, the Messiah. And he is your substitute and mine. He gave his life. He stepped in at the cross and took your place and mine and paid the penalty to forgive our sins. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world died for you and for me. And of course, the story does not end there, does it? Absolutely not. For the story is fulfilled three days later as that Son of God comes back to life victorious over death and sin and Satan and hell. Victorious over all that is wrong. Guaranteeing that all who trust in Him too will be raised from the dead on the last day and will have everlasting life in heaven with Him. And friends, now this is where our own baptism plays an important role. And I want you to listen what St. Paul says once again in today's epistle lesson about our baptism and what it has to do with what Jesus did for us. He says to the Romans, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. What's the basic point Paul is communicating here? Our baptism connects us to the death and resurrection of Jesus. It connects us. The cross is for us. The empty tomb is ours. We are connected to his death and resurrection. We are the beneficiaries of what he accomplished there. We receive forgiveness and eternal life. And our baptism is what connects us to it all. Let me extend this invitation, if I may. If you have not been baptized, or if perhaps your children have not yet been baptized, and you would like to explore further what baptism is and or what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, I would love to sit and talk with you. Give me a call. Send me an email. Let's get together and talk. It could be the most important thing you do in your life. <laughs> I began this message by saying that there are various opinions about Jesus. Some say he's just a good moral teacher. Some say he's a false messiah, a failure. But let me ask you, based on what we observe in his baptism, his death, and his resurrection, how do you answer the question, who is Jesus? I pray that you would call him your loving Savior. Amen.
May the peace of God, which passes human understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.